You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. what these people do. They cause division. It's the greatest scheme of the enemy. He wants to do it to your family. He wants to do it to your marriage. And he certainly wants to do it to the church. It's the greatest scheme of the enemy. Savage wolves from within the flock that won't really care for the flock. They cause division. Most of us would be quick to agree that it only takes a quick glance at society to see that we're clearly the most divided that we've ever been. As believers and followers of Christ, this is all the more reason why we should be united in our congregations. In today's message, Pastor Danny reflects on the Apostle Paul's warning that predators of the church seek to destroy by dividing. In his study, you'll be reminded that the very spirit that seeks to divide society is all the more intent on dividing the church. Now here's Pastor Danny in the book of Romans, chapter 16, as he begins his message, People in the Church to Avoid. Romans chapter 16, and we left off in verse 17. Paul the Apostle, as he closes out this letter of Romans, I urge you, brothers and sisters, he says, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. That's pretty clear. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's said in the context of those who cause divisions and ultimately any division in family or church is from the enemy. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I thought of Hebrews where it says, don't miss the grace of God and allow any kind of attitude to turn to bitterness and so defile not only you, but many. It's a passage that's very personal to me and it's a challenge for me because of what's happened in my life and ministry. I could not help but when I studied the text to go to Acts chapter 20. So from this text, Acts chapter 20, which really is applicable and relevant to the text in Romans chapter 16, Paul the apostle in Acts chapter 20 is passing through 
uh, the area of Ephesus. He had before planted a church in Ephesus, and it became a very significant church. And he wants to meet with the elders of the church, and he calls them together. And when he gets them together, one of the things he says is very relevant to our text from Romans chapter 16. And beginning in verse 28 of Acts chapter 20, Paul, addressing the elders of the church of Ephesus, says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. As I read that, one of my questions is, how did Paul know? How did he know that after he leaves, savage wolves from within the church are going to come in and not spare the flock? How did he know? Was it a revelation from God? We aren't told. Or, or was it just something he knew was going to happen potentially to every congregation because it's the greatest scheme of the enemy? What is it? It's what these people do. They cause division. It's the greatest scheme of the enemy. He wants to do it to your family. He wants to do it to your marriage. And he certainly wants to do it to the church. It's the greatest scheme of the enemy. Savage wolves from within the flock that won't really care for the flock. They cause division. Say this with me, and even say the parenthesis here, all right, together. Ready? Here we go. Unity, love, is the greatest thing a church or family can experience in life. Psalm 133 is one of the shortest psalms, but boy, is it, boy, is it so good. Listen to Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like oil, precious oil poured on the head. That's an anointing. That's what he's talking about, anointing. Running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard. Aaron was the leader of the Old Testament church with Moses, his brother. Aaron was the high priest. Down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Refreshing. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. the greatest thing you can experience in life, in a marriage, in a family, in a church. And it is the one thing that Satan wants to destroy. I put in my notes, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 opens, and it's called the love chapter, the love chapter. And it's interesting how it opens in chapter 13, the Apostle Paul again writing, and he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but don't have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, just making noise. 
If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, have faith that can move mountains, but don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, give over my body to hardship, more manuscripts say the literal is to give my body to the flames. You offer yourself as a martyr for God. But if I don't have love, I gain nothing. Proverbs 17, what a, what a statement. Better a dry crust with peace than a house full of feasting with strife. I mean, you can have it laid out, live in a mansion, and you got, I mean, it's a feast. But if there's no peace, if there's no, you know, unity in the family, no love, all that feasting really means nothing. As a church, you can have the most impressive facility, but if there's not love, means nothing. Be better to live in a hut and have church in a hut. What a statement. Better a dry crust, just a dry crust, a little saltine cracker <laughs> with peace and a house full of feasting with strife. Now, now, you know what a challenge this is, right? It's a challenge because we all have a tendency toward division. I mean, I put in my notes, don't have time to go to all of it. You look at Old Testament, New Testament, the personal disputes, the doctrinal disputes. Paul and Barnabas, greatest missionary team of the New Testament, came to a point where they had a disagreement about Something that then was so sharp that they couldn't come to terms with an agreement that they parted. Split. One went one way and one went the other. First Corinthians 1 opens and Paul writes to the Corinthian church and they were divided. And one of the reasons for their division, leadership preferences. Some say I'm of Paul, some of, I'm of, of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, Peter. And they were divided over which pastor they liked the best. Which personality they were attracted to the most. It's a great challenge. And just the fact that we're so different. Why in the world do you think Ephesians and Colossians encourage us to forbear with one another in love? Put up with one another. Because we're so naturally different. And so it's a great challenge. And that's why it, it's, it's so easy, if you will, for Satan to divide us because there are so many things that naturally tend to divide us. And that's why Paul writes in this last section in Romans, watch out, watch out, beware, because this is the greatest scheme of the enemy. And there are people in the church, in the church, that will be used by the enemy. Now, they don't think they're being used by the enemy, but they'll be used by the enemy to bring division. One of the translations says that they create scandal, create scandal. That's a really good definition to really fully understand what's going on here. Indignation brought about through gossip or backbiting. We'll come back to that one, whether you like it or not. And the third thing is they ignore or disregard the word of God, especially as it relates to maintaining unity in the church. That could be a whole series. I just jotted down a few things. Here are some of the most common mistakes and, and disregard that people have 
in maintaining unity. Uh, one is Matthew 18, 15. Matthew 18, 15. Somebody sins against you. Somebody offends you. It's a very clear directive. It's not an option. It's, it tells us how to do it. Somebody offends you, go to them, just you and them, you and them. But already you see the challenge because what do we naturally do? I'll tell you what we naturally do. All of us naturally. The first thing we want to do when you get offended, you get sinned against, you want to tell your best friend because you know, your best friend is going to take your side. But the Bible says the first one you ought to go to is the one you got an attitude against, the one that's offended you, the one that sinned against you. Why? Because that's where the issue is. And when you go to your best friend who you know is going to take your side, what you've done just by taking that step, just by that step, you've created division between you and this person that has offended you. We don't do Matthew 18, 15 so many times. Instead of going to the person that's offended us, that sinned against us, we go to other people and we talk to them and we tell them, and oh yeah, I can't believe they did that to you. I can't believe, what a jerk, you know, I, I always knew they were like that anyway. You know, and you just, and you're talking to them and you're just creating the division. Second, it follows right along with not doing Matthew 18. You develop an attitude. You develop an attitude. I wrote down Hebrews 12, 15, see that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root is allowed to grow that defiles you and many because it'll affect not just you, it'll spread. And you're the one that spreads it. I had a thought this morning that, that I didn't have in my notes and didn't think about last night, but I just popped into my head a book I read years ago by a guy named Larry Crabb. It was a book on Christian counseling. And I remember, like yesterday, as I thought about it this morning, one of the chapters is uh, talking about how to deal with relationships and relational uh, challenges in the church and with people. And the title of the chapter, chapter is Total Openness, The Wrong Solution. And what he, what he meant by that is he, as he began to itemize and talk about it in the chapter, that if we, if we told everybody Every thought we had about them throughout the day, all we'd be doing is going, well, I can't believe it. Look at their hair, you know, and, and you'd be saying all kind of things that total openness. That's not what we're talking about. But the next chapter following that one is this total commitment. And Paul commends those who are being obedient to the word. Because they're being committed to the unity of the fellowship. Total commitment. Doesn't mean every time you get a little, you know, negative thing that somebody does because they didn't say hi to you or whatever, you know. No, no. But but as soon as you know you got an attitude, and all of a sudden you got an attitude, and there's a seed, a seed of an attitude that that's starting to grow. That if you don't deal with it, will turn into bitterness. That's when you know I got to do something. That's when you know I got to take a step. I got to go to them. And the third one I put down is Ephesians 4.2. And I mentioned it a few minutes ago. It says that also in Colossians, we over time just don't end up forbearing with one another. You've heard it, most of you, but it's, it's a good one, so I'll tell it again. Stumpy and Martha, you know, they were high school sweethearts, and 
as high school sweethearts, they would go to the fair every year. And one year at the fair, there was a new ride. It was an airplane ride. Stumpy said to Martha, Martha, let's, let's go on that airplane ride. And they didn't have a lot of money, you know. And so Martha said, Stumpy, that airplane ride is $10, and $10 is $10. Well, this went on year after year. Finally, they graduated high school. They ended up getting married. And as a married couple, they continued this annual date, if you will, at the fair. And now as a young married couple, here they are at the fair. And there's the same airplane ride. And now that they're married, Stumpy says to Martha, Martha, now that we're married, let's ride that airplane. Well, they don't have a lot of money. And so Martha has the same response she's had for years. You know, Stumpy, that airplane ride is $10 and $10 is $10. Stumpy's just forbearing with his wife every year, and he, she want, he wants to love her and please her and not spend the money, you know, because it's putting her out of, you know, she's not wanting to spend that money for the airplane rides, $10. And this goes on, continues to go on, finally, finally one year, the pilot, same pilot, been not giving these rides for years, goes over to Stumpy and Martha because he's heard them. He's heard them arguing about the airplane ride, and he said, look, I've heard you guys every year. Here's what I'll do. I'll offer you a free ride, no charge. But and seeing how you guys can, you know, kind of have challenges with one another, I want no talk on the airplane ride. No talk. So you got to be silent. Any talk, it's $10. All right? Stumpy looks at Martha. What's Martha going to say? They get in the airplane. He takes off, you know, and they go. Well, this pilot is a little bit deceptive he wants his ten dollars and so he figures i'm gonna do some things that are gonna get them to say something you know and he does this deep dive not a word he pulls up not a word he does all these tricks he finally turning around heading back toward the airport and still not a sound he lands the plane goes over to Stumpy, and he can't believe it. He says, look, I can't believe all those tricks I did. I figured you guys would say something, and there'd be some kind of thing between you. But a deal's a deal. No charge. Stumpy says, well, I was going to say something back there when Martha fell out, but $10 is $10. <laughs> now, that's funny. <laughs> what happened? I'll tell you what happened. <laughs> Stumpy, forbear. He would forbear every year, every year. And finally, enough is enough. And he just got tired of it. And sometimes you just get tired of it. You say, that's enough. I put up with them so much, you know, and all this. And you, you just say, that's enough. Forbear with one another. Now, the text talks about their character. What's their character? I want this to sink in. The character of these kind of people, they're self-seeking. You could say it in any number of ways. You could just say they're selfish. Because that's what they are. They're selfish. When I read James chapter 4 now, it says where you have envy and selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. There you find disorder. And here's what it says. And every evil practice. I personally now... See, selfishness and selfish ambition as a worse sin than drug addiction, prostitution. Selfish ambition does more damage 
than drug addiction and prostitution. After James 3, you get into James 4, and he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And if you read it, the root of it is selfishness. Our text says they're not serving the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. There's something they want. There's some satisfaction they're looking to get. They're self-seeking. And if you don't think we struggle with this, <laughs> Jesus' starting team, the 12, the apostles. Let me take you quickly, quickly. Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, and verse 33. Some of these stories are a bit humorous, but at the same time, they're very serious. Mark chapter 9 and verse 33. They came to Capernaum. He's with the 12, the apostles. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the, on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and he said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Well, that personal time should have done it for him, right? <laughs> well, go to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, and you go down to verse 20. And this is sometime later now. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that would be James and John, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left. I don't care which one's on the right and which one's on the left, as long as it's number one and number two. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can. And Jesus said, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom the Father has prepared for them. And th look at verse 24. When the ten heard this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And the unity of the starting team is already threatened right there. Well, you think they learned it there. Uh, no, go one more. Luke's gospel, chapter 22. And now they're at the final Passover meal before Jesus goes to the cross. And verse 24, here's the record. At the final Passover meal, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Well, certainly the cross and the burial and the resurrection, certainly they're different after the resurrection. <laughs> okay, I'll give you one more. Only by request, if that's what you want. All right, one more. Uh, John chapter 20. John's gospel, chapter 20. After the resurrection... <laughs> this is humorous. When you study carefully the resurrection account in John's record, it says in verse 3, when the ladies come from the tomb and tell the other disciples that they were there and he's not there, he's risen, and they don't believe it, but Peter gets up and John gets up, and they're the first two to make a dart toward the tomb. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple, John, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. Why is that important to the record? He doesn't just tell us once. If you go down to verse 8, 
Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he tells us twice in the record, he outran Peter to the tomb. We're so glad that you joined us for today's edition of The Living Word. Thanks for being a part of our listening audience. If you'd like to hear today's message from the Book of Romans again, or hear more from Pastor Danny Hodges, visit ccfstpete.church. You're also invited to join our Bible reading plan. Just look under the Resources tab on our website for more information. As you make your way through the Bible, you might be surprised how something you read hits your heart exactly where you're at or what you're going through. God's Word has a way of doing that, and it's unmistakably God's way of speaking to you. As we wrap up our time with you today, we'd like to take a moment to ask you to partner with us here on The Living Word. Would you join with us in praying for the listeners of this program? You never know how someone might be impacted by hearing about God over the radio, even if they weren't intending to. Pray that listeners would be open to hearing the gospel message. Pray also that we'd continue seeking God's will for this program in teaching the Word and reaching the world. We'd also like to ask you to pray about supporting The Living Word financially. If you feel led, you can find a way to do this through our website, ccfstbete.church. Just click on the Give tab. We're so grateful for your support. Thanks for praying, giving, and listening here on The Living Word.